This is Star Talk. Hello and welcome everyone to Star Talk All Stars. I'm your All Star host of the evening, Carolyn Porco. I'm a planetary scientist, which means I love planets. I'm the leader of the imaging science team on the Cassini mission, presently in orbit around Saturn, and a veteran imaging scientist of that fabled mission, Voyager, to the outer solar system in the 1980s. Joining me as my comedic co-host is Star Talk veteran, the very funny Chuck Nice. That remains to be seen. Yes. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for being here today, Chuck. Uh, Last time we did this, you were such a champ. You came here and did two shows, and you had a cold. And the flu. Yes, I had the flu. And you're, you're okay today. I, you know what? I'm not contagious. Okay. So we are in much better position. Okay, because today we have a very special guest with us, and that is Sean Ono Lennon. Welcome, Sean. Hello. Howdy. Good to be you here. You are here. Thanks for having me. I made it. You made it. <laughs> in the humidity. As, as I like to say, if you were alive and alert during the 1960s, and it would be forgivable if you weren't either, you will certainly recognize Sean's last two names. Yes, he is the son of John Lennon and Yoko Ono, and I know what you're all thinking, but that is not why I invited him here today. He is, of course, a musician and has been for decades, right? That's correct. Uh, He's just completed a tour with his new band called the Claypool Lennon Delirium, which is fronted by both Sean and Les Claypool. Most people will know Les as the lead guy in... Primus, right? Primus. Primus, yeah. Referred to on Wikipedia, I'm sorry I had to do this, as a funk metal band. Is that an accurate description? You know, it's good enough for now. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Wait around 10 minutes, it'll change. But but actually, none of that is why Sean is here today. He's here because I noticed as I followed him on Twitter that he's a serious, I called him badass, science groupie. He pays attention to what's going on in all sorts of arenas like planetary exploration and cosmology, artificial intelligence, technology, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, and on it goes. Uh, he even wears glasses. That's, that makes him official. And, and there's no prescription in it. <laughs> yeah. It's just for effect. It's just for effect. Well, looking this good isn't that easy. <laughs> <laughs> and I found, I found he was enamored with Saturn, which was cool by me. And in fact, when he was a teenager, um, he painted a painting of Saturn that he recently sent me, which I think was adorable. Uh, and through all of this in the last few months and lots of email exchanges and discussions, I found him to have a really incisive intelligence, a gentle soul, uh, and he's a staunch feminist to boot. So I thought he'd be perfect to have on Star Talk. Thank you. Uh, anyway, it's a delight to have you. I'm really excited to be here, guys. Yeah, okay. I'm excited to have you. Okay, so there's so much we could talk about, but I wanted to begin with this. Uh, since you are a science groupie, what is it about science that draws you to it? You didn't become a scientist, although you told me you spent some time at Columbia. You actually went through three semesters at Columbia. Well, I was, at at one point I was interested in anthropology at Columbia, but then I kind of got distracted by a record deal and all this, and I'm not sure if I regret it, but I just left and went to do music, and I've been doing that ever since. I had a similar experience where I went to Columbia and they said, listen, you can't just be on campus. You actually have to go here. And then I had to leave. Yeah. What do you mean? You actually you have to go attend classes, they said? Oh, gee, you didn't know that was part of the contract. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. I'm just like, what a cool campus. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. um, Why didn't I go into science? Well, I think when I was young, I was Hmm. in a boarding school. It was kind of a strict British boarding school. And 
you know, they were pretty, uh, you know, they, they discouraged people who were, you know, hippie, you know, children like me. So I don't know. I felt maybe that I didn't have the mathematic aptitude for wait, science. Wait, wait, wait. They later. discouraged people who were hippie children? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there was sort of what like... What year a, are we talking? Well, you know, when I was, I guess, uh, between 12 and 15... So you were like, this was the late 80s. Yeah, but I still don't know if I have the aptitude for real scientific work, or at least not the diligence, but I'm certainly a fan. You definitely are a fan. Yeah. I can tell you're a fan. You know, you think deeply, you wonder about the state of the world like many of us do. I try. The future of humanity yeah. um, from where you sit. Yeah. Okay, on Twitter, everywhere, whatever, wherever you look. Uh, what do you think are the biggest issues? Yeah, well, I'm, you know, I think... I think we've all been really concerned recently, and I mean, you know, everyone that I know, at least, uh, with the state of of the world. I mean, politically, and, you know, environmentally. And uh, I remember growing up, um, and you've mentioned this before, the, the movie 2001, it seemed like we might at least be you know, taking trips to the moon and living in some sort of utopic, you know, futuristic society. Uh, when I was young, there was a kind of optimism about the future. And I've noticed in the last 10 years that that kind of inherent optimism has kind of been replaced by a, a real pessimism and negativity about, you know, the potential for humans to survive at all. Yeah. So, you know, and I, and I think that it's concerning because, you know, people tell me, oh, well, you know, there's always been people worried about Armageddon throughout any period of history, but it's it's the first time I've noticed that people, that scientists sort of unanimously talk about the Anthropocene and the human-caused uh, extinction epoch as something we just sort of have to accept, which is, in essence means that we're bringing about our own demise and, you know, learning to live in today's world means accepting that demise as a given. Well, I don't, I don't know that I'm hearing scientists say this, but it's interesting that you think you're hearing them say that we have to accept it. I think the role that scientists are playing is to illuminate the facts that... No, of course, know, I agree with you, but the term Anthropocene means human-caused uh, extinction epoch, mm -hmm. and so if that's real, which uh, essentially I feel... I think it just means it's a... Does it mean that that's a foregone conclusion, or does it mean that we have that potential? Because I think the Anthropocene age that we live in is shows that we are in... We're on the precipice that we can definitely bring about our own demise, but that it's up to us whether or not that happens. Well, well I, hold I'm it, hold it. I don't, I don't yeah, think it decided. means. I don't think it means the term means that we are going to bring about our own demise. The way it, it just means that we are in a period of geological history now where humans are a an effect. global effect, an effect, right? Yeah, a yes. major effect. But the, the, it's see, not, you know. When you say, Carolyn, that all those effects. <laughs> are pretty bad, and that's why the assumption is we're going to bring about our own demise. Well, but also, aren't the epochs uh, uh, distinguished by extinctions? Uh, not all of them. I don't think the boundaries mm. are all that way. Um, no. Uh, I, I think basically... Some of them have right. been. But I think it's more, like one species becomes more dominant after that. Isn't okay, that true? I forget. I, maybe you know more about this than I do, but I... Um, my rec I'm the comedian. Please do not look at <laughs> Yeah. Well, <laughs> Either way, I'm not saying that everyone agrees about what anth the Anthropocene is. But I just mean that I'm hearing more and more legitimized scientists say that, you know, 
well, you Cubans know aren't going to make it. You know why? Because we are facing absolutely out of control, unprecedented problems. Right. Yeah. You know, it's one thing to be depressed that you're not going to, you know, have the job you want by the time you die or, you know, any number of things we all get depressed about. But when you start being depressed as I am, and I think there's a word for it, I'm sorry, I don't know, when you're actually depressed about the state of the world and not about, you know, and your love or And it's not a neuroses. Um, I mean, to think that, you know, I thought like 2001 was horrible because you just wouldn't think a building like that would just buildings would have planes flying into them and they would go away. Right. Mm -hmm. Live in New York. Right. Yeah. I was New York skyline changed like that. Yeah. Suddenly things are not immutable. Sure. But in my mother's generation, that happened to Tokyo. And I mean, so it's, it's arguable that that the world has you know, always had ch challenges through every generation. But the question is, is there something distinctly different now? And I think... Yes, it's environmental change that is is going to bring about all sorts of bad things, yes. including uh, geopolitical instability. That's exactly. But my, I've heard a lot of people say that it's not... The environmental change is going to be nothing compared to just simply making most jobs obsolete through automation and robotics. Wow. Now that's a, that's a, that's a very interesting point because yeah. when you look at the, the future of, um, just the global workforce, there are a lot of people now calling for just universal pay, you know, where you, you know, you just pay people to be yeah. so that as a means of getting rid of poverty, because we're going to have a huge, um, um, increase in the amount of poverty globally, globally because of mm -hmm. automation. It's hard to anticipate what's going to happen. But even when I go to the airport now and they force you to use the robotic kiosk, I remember the woman was like, you got to go use it. She was kind of rude to me. And I was like, well, wouldn't you prefer you help me? Because, you know, these robots are displacing hundreds of people <laughs> employed in your, you know, in Did your you buy it? field. You're one of them, lady. Yeah. And, and, and I I was like, why are you so happy about, you know, promoting the use My of these goodness. robots that are replacing you? And she didn't even know what I was talking about. But I do find it ironic, you know, that uh, these kinds of uh, these kinds of automation are being sort of, you know, forced upon us when we do have a choice. We can still employ people to, you know, work at the airport. But, um, you know, so I think that's just the beginning of it. But who knows how many jobs could be misplaced by automation and and the potential for uh, the a division between the rich and the poor is, is so great. I mean, we think it's bad now, but it could be much worse in 100 years. So, I mean, that worries me almost as much as the Anthropocene. There are, there are a lot of worrisome things. Maybe we should go to Cosmic Queries and um, see what they've got in see store what, for us. What, Maybe they've... See what other uh, my, um, what other dark tales that we can glean from the internet. <laughs> but I no. will recommend that book by Roy Scranton called Learning to Die in the Anthropocene because ultimately he does have a sort of Zen view of you know, how we have to be motivated to have families and you know, be ambitious and work and be productive you know, in a sort of Zen sense and just live in the moment and be happy to, you know, exist despite, you know, the potential for a meteorite impact in 100 years or something, you know. So I do think it's a good book, but it did make me a little nervous. But I will say that it's it's beautifully written. Okay. Awesome. We'll, we'll note it. Well, we have queries from all over the Internet, uh, whether it's Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or you name it, um, where people have written their questions to you guys uh, on all of these things that we just uh, talked about and more. So why don't we take our first one, which is from Patreon, a Patreon patron. And for those of you who don't know, if you support us on Patreon financially, uh, we give you precedent. Uh, basically, you have bribed us into reading one of your questions. <laughs> and, and we don't mind. 
we'll, we'll admit that. <laughs> so uh, this is from Nick Sazafransky. Okay, Nick, I hope I got it right. All right. Nick Sazafransky says this. With the Earth adding leap days to the calendar every four years, and Carolyn, this is probably more you than... Oh, I'm worried already. Are you ready? Uh, are we as human beings moving our perception of the seasons backwards, or is the, or is the hotter temperatures later in the year due to climate change? Okay, so that's a non sequitur. Okay, I, thank you, because I thought maybe... And listen, Nick, I, by no means am I going to disparage your question, but... The two really aren't related, right? It's pretty interesting, though. It's making me think. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, but I'm uh, okay. So yeah, I don't even know where to go with that. Okay. Well, you know, he leap said, seconds, he... leap seconds being added is just a way to bring about some kind of accounting of time. Caesar was the first one to do it. Didn't he invent the leap year? <laughs> you always ask me these questions. Yeah, and well, I'll say that it's true. I know. Okay, just assert Caesar that it's invented, true. Caesar invented. Yeah, he invented <laughs> the modern calendar. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know who knows a lot about this is Neil. He yes, loves the whole. You know what's really loves the calendar. You know what's very interesting in terms of the calendar is that you can memorize which months have uh, less than thirty-one days. If you start with January as F on a piano keyboard, and then the sharps F sharp, G sharp, and A sharp are the are the less than thirty-one day months, and it actually corresponds what, all the way January? up. And all the twelve notes correspond exactly to uh, the numbers of days in each month. Oh my God! That's pretty yes. cool. Ooh, uh, that's cool. weird. I like it. Okay, but starting with F, F is January? Yes, F would be January. I am going to learn to read music just so I can put that to work in my life. <laughs> and then C would be December. I like, you know, 30 days has September, April, June, and November. All That's the rest harder to 31. remember for me as a musician because the piano keyboard's in my head. All right. But it's interesting that it corresponds. I mean, I think this is an interesting segue to the intersection between art and science because, I mean, the diatonic scale was started by Py Pythagoras. You know, the, I told you, we geometer. wouldn't have any trouble with this guy. <laughs> and, uh, no, but it's interesting because also there's seven days of the week, you know, and Monday is moon day, Tuesday, lundi, mardi, mardi, lundi, mardi. Mars day is Tuesday, Mercury is Wednesday, That's Mercury is Jupiter, right? So they're named after the spheres, and as you know, the diatonic scale was also uh, related to the music of the spheres because in those days they believed that the harmony of the ratios that they found in the octaves, which is, you know, he plucked a string, added a weight, and doubled it, and then a third, w was actually the ratios of fifths and, and thirds Third. that, that are the diatonic scale. Right. And he thought that corresponded directly, well, not just Pythagoras, but they all did, to the music of the spheres, which was a sort of planetary uh, symphony that was the music of God or something. But I find that to be interesting in that you find these same ratios, at least, you know, and Fibonacci can be found in the music scale as well. Um, are you talking about the golden mean, which I think yeah. is the coolest thing? The Greeks used the golden mean. Yeah, exactly. Right. So there are these sort of mathematical connections between music and, and, and math. And, you know, I actually, want, this morning I was trying to think about the topic of, you know, what is the influence of science on art? And I was actually trying to figure out, well, when did actually, when, when actually was, was the separation of science and art? Because I think uh. early on, I mean, if you think about, you know, Babylonians, Egyptians, even Greeks, Art and science were totally intertwined, and I think it was probably Wait, is all... that right? Yeah, is of course. Right? Yeah, of course, because mathematicians were musicians, and music was made by a mathematician. And you know, the people that built the pyramids were craftsmen. I would call them scientists because they were masons. They understood, you know, okay. astronomy. Okay. And so, what I mean is, I think even all the way up to the Renaissance, scientists were artists. 
basically. So I'm just trying to wonder when did that actually when did when did the separation happen? Because I think fundamentally it could have been when I'm just going to take a guess. It could have been when scientists no longer were supported by a benefactor. Yes. But, you know, you could apply for grant money from the government. I was going to say this. Maybe, but I mean, we, we only have two minutes, you know. Oh, wow, what look we at do? that, man. We, we, we really we got off on breezed, it, didn't we? We did. Wow. Sorry to be the wet blanket, no, but do okay. we need to ask? Sorry, we need to ask some questions. All right, questions. let's get to another question, but that was that was great That was fascinating. Stuff. Well, I did want to tell you one quote. You can okay. edit this out. But um, <laughs> what? No. James Sylvester, uh, he was the Oxford scientist who taught Florence Nightingale, who basically invented modern nursing. And he said that uh, music is the mathematics of sense and mass is the music of reason. Hold it. Say it again. Music, music is the mathematics, mathematics of, of sense. sense. Yes, and mathematics is the music of reason. Oh, wow. Nice. Very nice. Yeah, well, I find that, that to be true. Who's, who said that? Uh, his name is James Sylvester. He was the Oxford uh, like scientist who was the tutor for Florence Nightingale, who invented modern I love nursing the, in the Victorian there, era. There's a beautiful uh, reciprocity there that works wonderfully. I like that. All right, we're, we're almost out of time. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get are, one. one minute and we got one minute. So I'm going to get one that, Carolyn, that maybe you can knock out for us in a minute. Let's hope. Okay, here we go. Uh, Ronnie A. Morrison Jr. from Facebook wants to know this. Hey, so, Carolyn, what in the world is at Saturn's core? Could it be some kind of dense liquid that's not molten, or is it just boring old rocky material? <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> it's boring old rocky material. Is it Saturn really? has a boring old rocky core, and then um, it's got a thick outer layer where you go from atmosphere to, um, uh, uh, l oh, God, fluidized, uh, ionized uh, hydrogen, helium, and then you get into metallic hydrogen, and then you go into the core. You go into the core. Is yeah, it's plasma? pretty. Is ionized hydrogen just plasma? Yeah, you're too damn smart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, at what point will the... Yeah, I don't understand why you didn't become a scientist. But at one point... Okay, we got... We'll... Wait a minute. Sorry. Stop right here. We have to take a short break, but okay. we'll be back shortly. Sorry. And I need a break, too. <laughs> Talking more science here on Star Talk. All stars. <laughs> Welcome back to Star Talk All Stars. I am your host for today, Carolyn Porco, and we have the always humorous. Chuck Nice here today. Aha, Thank you. Uh, as well as our in less humorous, our in studio guest who regards himself as less humorous, but I don't. <laughs> Science groupie uh, and musician Sean Lennon. So thank you both for. Uh. Howdy. And we're Howdy. finding out that Sean is extremely science literate, like to That's not exaggerating. And well well informed. Well informed. Well informed. Super man. cool, man. Just Googling under the table. <laughs> oh, okay, well <laughs> Would that be hilarious though yeah. if you had like it's a like, little phone right here. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, really I think it was actually thirteen <laughs> atoms in aluminum. So so we were we were talking about, you know, the Anthropocene and all the awful things that are happening, climate change and uh, all the good stuff. Great inequities, all the things that really are concerning people today. And, and they come with a bigger punch than usual because they really seem like catastrophic, right? Yeah. Like, you know, we're, we're on an exponential, science. we're on an exponential curve to the end. So um, I, I, this is something that Sean and I 
uh, talked about it over email. And even when I went to see you, I went to see his show. Uh, Boston. Nice of you to come to that. Boston, it was a rockin' show. I hadn't been to a concert in God knows how long. She got nice. to play my guitar. I have a picture of me with his sparkly green guitar. And I thought, well, for a moment there, I was infinitely cool. Carolyn Porco, rock, rock god. Goddess, <laughs> I think. I don't believe in terms okay. for that. That's just okay. God is God. So we're so anyway, we're thinking of, you know, I think about how horrible our stewardship of the planet has been, um, how we have behaved collectively with no regard to animals and animal life as mm. if um, they are there for us or against us, depending on, um, you know, what we deem uh, important. And even if we can find optimism in technological achievements and progress that comes from that, um, I wonder, you know, our fundamental nature seems to be angel and devil together in the same package. And it seems to be to our evolutionary advantage to kill or at least regard with great suspicion everything that is alien to us and to protect our own. Will we ever be able to get beyond this? Is mm. anything on the planet Earth really alien to us, though? Is that That's an interesting question. Well, no. In fact, you know, and I love when I'm talking to people or on Twitter, I always love to regard, talk about anything we show on Twitter, an animal, a bug, you know, anybody. It's another Earthling. Right. It's really just let's reset the perception. But this is a serious question. You know, it's... Um, we have both. Both are the reason why we have become so successful, right? We kill things that let our genetic material advance into the future. Advance into the future. Is yeah. that going to be the thing that kills us? Where is and where can how can we be optimistic? Where is there that we can well, find? Aren't there optimism? examples? There's so many examples in nature <clears throat> of sustainable systems, though. That's the thing. So I feel like we could easily benefit from natural resources without destroying them because you know, there are a lot of examples in nature where it's a symbiotic relationship where yeah. you know well the symbiosis are happy to you know live in our gut right. and we, without them give, we would die we're happy <laughs> to give them ice cream you know right. what i mean so i feel like it's possible to to have a sustainable society but what i really want to ask you is how do you feel about the potential of I mean, this is the kind of stuff that I'm sure your audience likes to hear about anyway. I mean, how do you, everyone's talking about colonizing Mars, like Elon Musk is talking about getting there. I mean, if we can't even terraform Arizona, what are the chances of us terraforming a planet that has no magnetic field, no continental drift, I mean, no protection from, you know, the radiation, the radiation of the sun, and we can't even, you know, terraform Arizona. So I don't, I don't really see what, if, what the realistic... So you know, thinking is there. This is how I view this whole topic. Um, first of all, I'm a big fan of human uh, exploration, that is, as opposed to robotic. I, I'm a big fan of both. I think they go hand in hand. There's a place for both. Or like cloak. <clears throat> glove to glove. Glove, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, human exploration for, uh, you know, the practical reasons. Like it takes, a, it would take a human you know, an instant to be walking around on the surface of Mars and identify a rock that was of interest. It would take a long time, longer, for a robot to do it because the robot's got to be in touch with the ground and maybe you could train them to recognize it. But, you know, we've, we've had, you know, billions of years or yeah, billions of years of evolution to work off of to get to where we are. We're pretty good at that. So that's good. But I also think human exploration, I'm digressing here, is important for the inspiration that it allows people, 
you know, seeing someone do something that is on the very edge of what human is humanly possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I don't think that for people that people should be thinking we're going to take seven billion people or nine billion people and move them to Mars. <laughs> that is not going to happen. We the the analog that I think is applicable here is one where we are going to set up the equivalent of scientific research stations on Antarctica. We've had for decades now a continuously inhabited research outpost on Antarctica, and valuable things are done there. And sure. I think that's what we'll do in the solar system. But That's a much more realistic view then, but I've, I've read <clears throat> a lot of, you know, books. Even Michio Kaku, when I was young, I read a book of his that was talking about this Russian scientist who has qualifications for a phase one society, phase two society, and I think it was your friend Carl Sagan who actually just made more distinct, like a, more, smaller distinctions between the phases, but that essentially if you survive a nuclear age, then you get to another phase of, you know, of, of a possible extinction threat, but then you can eventually build a geodesic dome or something or a Dyson Dyson uh, sphere around the sun and you get all this energy and then you can make wormholes and you can essentially populate (laughs) the universe. Um, I just feel like a lot of people use that kind of theoretical thinking to sort of justify the survival or the, 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 the optimism that we might survive as a species if we actually populate the solar system or, you know, elsewhere. And I just feel like it's so unrealistic because we, as you said, we're not very good custodians of our own planet. So how could we possibly make a place as inhospitable as Mars ever. Well, you know, the you other, know. The, 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 the antithesis of what you're saying, or the flip side, more than an antithesis, the flip side of that is, perhaps that's how we are here. It is not really about us populating uh, other places as in colonization, but in seeding other places the same way that we seed each other to send our DNA into the future. Yeah. That's why we have sex and you we have kids. You want to impregnate Mars. Right. We just, I just want to impregnate Mars is what I'm saying. I'm going to knock you up, Mars. <laughs> well, that's, that's what's happening right now. Yeah, well, I want to watch. I'll, I'll pay to see that. He wants to watch. I want to watch. I'll pay to see that. I'll pay to see that. Bow, wow. Yeah, totally. Mars is getting sexy. Maybe, yeah. But, but, yeah, but yeah, you understand what I'm saying? So ma- maybe it's not about colonization. Maybe it's the survival, you know, the same way on a cellular level. We survive because we send uh, a, a single cell to a single cell and then boom, that's well, how life You're just saying this is the expression of the base need. Exactly. To, to, to it's survive. an expression of a base need to, to survive. But that's a good question because I just read an article that said if humans will go extinct or we actually face the extinction of, of life on the planet, do we have an obligation then to seed other exoplanets with, you know, Earth-bound DNA? Like, should we send rockets and do our own anthropanspermia project to spread life if, we, if we're looking at our own extinction? Do we have a duty to do that, or is it bad to do that? I, I don't is know. Violating the, the prime directive? These are moral questions, but isn't it just an incredibly fascinating question to ponder? Yeah, it is. Boy, you just, like, you could spend an evening drinking a glass of wine in front of a fireplace thinking about all these things and have bottle? a really good time. Should <laughs> I think we, you said should, bottle of wine. Should we do? Yeah, yeah, let's get into vodka. another one. Uh, let's switch gears here. Let's switch gears. I, I, because, you know, uh, you guys kept bringing up Twitter. So we have some questions where people want to talk about Twitter. And uh, um, let me see who this person is. Oh, Kavon or Kavon Kutai. I 
That's all right. Don't, really don't apologize. You, you did. I, you I gave did it your best, best shot. I could. I, yeah. I think these people are sending me fake names just so I can struggle. <laughs> I swear. That's right. Okay. People call me Seon every day. Seon? <laughs> every day. Every day. I get Seon. <laughs> I do. Okay. So uh, here's what Kavan wants to know. Social media has a representation for disseminating false and misleading information. But since people are also being mm. exposed to the collective knowledge, wisdom, education, and expertise of other users, aren't they getting a more stimulating and meaningful experience than they would from just watching or reading news about more tra uh, by more traditional means. So mm -hmm. it, it, is that collective knowledge that is represented on a base like Twitter or Facebook, is that greater or is it more harmful in that you could have more people just believing wrong stuff? Well, here's, you know, it's the yin and yang of everything. But it's not. The older, the older I got, I've gotten, the more I realize just about everything you can think of has a good side and a bad side. To me, the good side of Twitter is that, um, first of all, you are accessing the knowledge of lots of people that you wouldn't have otherwise have access to. You, I mean, it's out there. Yeah. Sometimes I've sent things out on Twitter and I realize, oh my God, that's, that's wrong. I'm sorry, I just hit the send button. Three seconds later, someone's back and saying, that's not right, you know, I've got smart people following me. That's great. It's also great that it bypasses the, um, the what's the word here? The, the Is, guardians of the news, yeah. the standard, ah, it's the, standard the gatekeepers. gatekeepers. Yeah. The gatekeepers. I mean, aren't we finding that the regular news media are just... It's all sensational. It's tabloid now. It's tabloid. It's really they are doing it for profits. Right. They're not doing it to convey accurate information. This whole business of setting up a false equivalence between someone who's knowledgeable, someone who doesn't know Jack, right. but just for the sake of making it look like they're having a reasonable discussion. Yeah, it it looks like it's an intellectual tennis match, and it's not. So I like that about social media a lot. But the downside is that you're also accessing people who um, have no self-control, and they don't really know how to engage in logical, reasoned discussion, and mm. they think the purpose of Twitter is just to let it all hang out, meaning their anger, you know, even yeah. if it's misdirected. Well, I've been contemplating the mm. ugliness of Twitter, you know, a lot recently because I'm, I'm pretty active on Twitter. And, you know, I think at first my criticisms were of the medium of Twitter. And then I started to realize that really it's more of a cross-section of people and it's my, my, my issues have to do with with us, with people. I think it's just people expressing what they think, and I think normally we wouldn't be exposed to such a cross-section of society, but, you know, Twitter is just us, and what we see uh, on Twitter... But it's, it's depressing it's how many people don't... I, they don't know how to engage. They don't know that you could criticize something mm. they've said right. yeah. and not criticize them. Absolutely. They take it personally. personally. And they, and well, the that's only, a lack of critical thought right there. It is somebody a lack of, It's a lack of critical thought when somebody uh, mm. takes a disagreement as a personal attack, you know, uh, and, and so many people do that on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. but so many people just do that. They, Period. They, and that's... <laughs> You know, I, I really do think people need to be trained. They need to be trained in critical thought. They need to sure. be trained. People need to be told how to vote. I don't even think people know how to no vote. No ad hominem, no straw man arguments. I mean, you know, it's easy to, I mean, these, you know, if you actually spend a little time, you can learn how to debate, you know, with civility. But I think... Again, the ugliness of Twitter is just the ugliness of people, and the beauty of Twitter is the beauty of people. So, well, we, but I would say the biggest problem to me with social media, since that's you know the topic, is that 
I think a generation of kids are learning how to represent themselves through a two-dimensional Facebook page very well, but they're not learning how to represent themselves to real physical human beings in a relationship with them in a room and in their lives. And it's I think a totally different thing. Is different Sean, skills. I totally disagree with you. Yeah, no, I'm exactly, joking. Exactly. <laughs> and, but those are different but skills. Right. And, you know, in fact, you can get a very good job being a master of social media these days. You know, yes, but, I know that. So that's a skill in itself. So do you think that at some point in time in the future that will actually have training for people? Because when you think about well, it, we're still that. in the nascent stages of social media. It's you, not just if training you take for a logic social and rhetoric media. class at any university, you're going to learn about ad hominem attacks and right. all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's been a part of I think it needs to be almost forever. like vocational. You, you do it, you teach people how to interact with other human beings, and I just don't think we're, we are given enough of that. Well, civility is out of fashion, though. That's the thing. Well, I mean, we were saying that. You know, yeah. there's no empathy on Twitter. It's, yeah. not, it's not cool to be compassionate. Sure. I actually, I won't tell you, it was the, pol it was the election season. I express compassion uh, on some topic, and the woman I was having this fight or this argument with referred to my response as maudlin because I actually expressed, like, you know. you said something nice. I, I said something. <laughs> you said I something that said, held compassion. Yeah. Right. We, it, uh, should we take another question? Because we're getting to the end of this Maudlin's a good vocabulary word, though, kids. Yes, <laughs> yes. absolutely. All right, here we go. Um, doo -doo -doo, let's go to uh, Huzefa Larry from Facebook. Yeah. That was an easy one. Yeah, it was an easy one, right? Okay. Art has evolved through time incorporating scientific advancements at every step. So maybe in the future, is it possible uh, that animations or visual effects that we see now may be considered a form of primitive inspiring art? Oh, of course. So, yeah, that, yeah, yeah that's so? kind of like a no-brainer. I think so. Well, I think, yeah. I think they're more talking about like the work that you do with your visual imaging. I don't, do you look at that as, a, as, as an art form as well? Oh, I do. Do you understand? I like, think that was the one thing I did as the leader of the imaging team. You know, we all, well, I'll speak for myself. I didn't want to do what other people who came before me had done, mm -hmm. you know, with the images that we were collecting. I wanted to do something different just to kind of add my mark. And I was always very disappointed. Oh, we have to go. Let's no, it's okay. Go ahead. Up. Finish your point. No, okay. seriously. I was always very disappointed with the way, for example, not to criticize because the Voyager project was like the best thing that ever happened to me and I think ever happened to anybody. But I, I just thought they didn't treat the images as well as they should have. They didn't present them as beautifully as they could have. It was all get the science out. We're just making pictures for the public because we got it. We have a press conference coming up and we have to do it. Sure. No, that's I thought okay. I want I want this to be the mechanism that takes the public along for the ride. That's awesome. So we pay, spent a lot of time. I spent a lot of time thinking about how to present the pictures, how to get the colors right, and the so self -portrait on. Self-portrait through the rings of Saturn was such a beautiful classic. My mom is a big fan of that photo. I know, and I loved it. Yoko Ono uh, actually complimented the day the Earth smiled. Like, how cool is that? That is amazing. <laughs> I mean, that's like great that you brought, you brought artistic integrity to the science, th thereby increasing the value of the science. And engaging the public. And engaging the public. That's fantastic. Well, yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm very proud of that. So I guess uh, we are going to have to take a short break, but don't go too far. We'll be right back here on Star Talk All-Stars.
Hello, and we are back with Star Talk All Stars. I'm Carolyn Porco, your All Star host, with Chuck Nice, my comedic co host. That's right. Thank you for being here, Chuck. And joining us in person is musician and total science groupie Sean Lennon. Yes, badass groupie. <clears throat> That's the most important part. That's right. Badass groupie. <laughs> yes. So, so where do we go from here? Well, one topic we haven't discussed. I feel honor bound and actually interested to to get to this topic. Um, I just caught you and Les Claypool and the gang uh, at the House of Blues in Boston just a couple of weeks ago. It was great. Thank you. I loved it. I hadn't been to a concert in a long time. I forgot how great it live music is. It was wonderful. Not always that great. And he, he actually dedicated a song to me. I just felt so oh. thrilled. Astronomy yes. Domine. Whoa. Sid Barrett, uh, Pink Floyd Pink song. Floyd. And I got to take a picture with his sparkly green guitar, so I got a moment of like feeling what a rock star is like. The lyrics are Jupiter and Saturn, Oberon, Miranda, and Titania. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And you know what all those are? Well, I th you can tell me. <laughs> no, we'll go there later. <laughs> so I want to know, is there something in particular that you feel you like to convey with your music? You write your own. Uh, and, you know, just go there. Do you have plans to take it in a different direction? How has it evolved over the years? It's all about... You as a musician, and you know. Yeah, interesting. I mean, and, and uh, one thing I will ask: I, mm -hmm. I don't want to dwell on this. I promise we wouldn't dwell on things like this. But do you feel almost? Is it like a calling because of your heritage, you know, your parents and so on? You felt a calling to be a musician. Did yeah. you feel almost everyone's expecting me to that to, to do that? So that's what I'll do. How did yeah. that come about? Well, I mean, there were several phases mm. to it. Um, the truth is, I was playing music before I was conscious of what a career was or even what the public was. I mean, my introduction to the public kind of came when my dad was murdered because there was just crowds of people out of the outside of the house. And they oh, went suddenly, oh, my God. Yeah, and they were singing Give Peace a Chance every day. I mean, it, it was for actually years. They'd always come back on the anniversary and stuff. So I, I think my introduction to him being a public person was through that. And I, I, I remember learning to play his songs on the piano when I was very young. Very young. Kind being. of as a way of, um, you know, five, six. Five, yeah. wow. Mm -hmm. Kind of as a way of feeling like I was, you know, Connected. getting closer to him, yeah. especially after he'd passed away. It was a way of me sort of communing with him or, or getting a piece of him back, you know, learning sure. music. Sure, I can So by the that. time it came to think about what is your career, I'd already kind of been doing music and uh you know that's why i left uh school was to to pursue music because it started taking over my life so it was never really a choice for me i was kind of thrust into it for personal reasons but you know i that's think that's a calling of sorts i was going to say yeah, i don't think it's a, a choice for any musician what you just described i've heard so many uh, musicians describe yeah. the same thing my brother is a musician and right. he went from being a fund manager right okay right. <laughs> and uh doing that for a while and then just going i can't take it anymore i have to go do this yeah you know what i mean and yeah. it's it's that same thing where it's yeah. like you're it's 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 at first, it feels like it's thrust upon you, but at the same time, you're, you can't live without it. You know? Well, yeah, it wasn't until I was 19 or 20 that I started realizing there would be a public reaction to whether I should or shouldn't have played music in the first place. And, you know, it's been a learning process since then. But, I mean, most of what I've learned is that I just have to kind of 
not think so much about what people, how people feel about me being a musician and just focus on, you know, the I, work. I Absolutely. imagine you have a very, you have the canonical burden of a child of a very famous person, right? You're, you're always going to be compared. That must be like so painful and so irritating. And well, yet you're and so delightful. And handsome. And handsome. Can I tell, okay, you said that. Can I tell you a little story? Sure. Can I tell you a little story? Um, you, okay, no, this I'm is, not so sure. I don't know, can you? This is not to embarrass you, but I'm walking uh, to the studio, right? Because I'm staying only on 25th Street. I decided to walk in the heat. Uh, and I pass two young girls. They look like they're teenagers or 20 years old. And I hear them talking about you. Really? They're talking about you. And one says, yeah, yeah, I, I kind of like Sean Lennon. Yeah, I think he's really cute. Oh, that's nice. Well, isn't you that? met the two girls in all of America. <laughs> no, one. I don't think so. Anyway, so, so, so go That's very cool, though. Yeah. Uh, well, listen, speaking of that, we, let's get to a, a cosmic query uh, about kind of like art and science, mm -hmm. since you kind of embody both. Um, and this is from Chris Emmett. And he says, how does art inspire scientists to think outside of the box and vice versa? So for you, how does art push your boundaries, your perspectives uh, further out? And for you, how does mm. science push your artistic boundaries? Is, is, I know you did, uh, what was it? The, uh, Monolith of the Phobos, right? Yeah, Monolith of Phobos is our record title. Yeah. So, like, I mean, clearly there's an association there for both of you. So, yeah, I mean, for me, for me, fundamentally, music is mass. I mean, you know, there's basically uh, X, Y, Z axis of, of the time in which the note is placed, the pitch of the note, and then the, the volume of that note. I mean, timbre could be arguably a fourth axis. But I mean, it's very mathematical. It's easy to chart music on a graph. And so, you know, I think any musician who stops to think about it would, would, would really, you know, think of, of melody as a kind of audio geometry. You know, so I mean, it is mass. And most of the people that I know who are very mathematically minded uh, are huge music nerds, you know. Um, my friend Eric Weinstein, who's a famous mathematician, uh, physicist, economist, you know, he all he ever wants to talk to me about is like whether Robert Johnson is cooler than Roy Harper. Or something. <laughs> <laughs> you know? oh. yeah. Well, for me, the, the, you, ask, you asked me this question. Um, I know that I, I'll just say that I love space art. I love space art. I love what space artists do, the scenes that they create. You know, and I you mean, need them at NASA, don't you? Because often you have to visualize illustrations um, that I notice when you, I mean, you can't take a picture of an exoplanet, but, I, but NASA releases these sort of illustrated what if it, you know, what if a we lot of, were sitting on, you know, Titan or something. Right. Uh, yeah. Yes. But I'm talking about the genuine space artists who just do it for a living. And I'm so, I'm, this is another one of those things I did that, uh, you know, I'm very happy I did. I didn't, don't think anybody was doing it before I did. But on our Cyclops website that we set up for the public, that is, you know, me and the Cassini imaging team, there's a special section there that is devoted to space artists. You know, just what the, the scenes they've depicted of Saturn, or we, we actually go beyond Saturn, but the rings and Titan. And, and 
I love looking at those and I love looking at, you know, just what the scenes on exoplanets because that's a way to be there. You know, right. these There's people... a beautiful painting your friend did of the rings of Saturn, the view of looking at those irregularities that are like, how high are they? Oh, the fabulous. Okay, wonderful that you brought that up yeah. because we found in the rings, we found um, this incredible thing. I mean, the rings are only 30 feet thick. Okay. Right? That's they're like, so wide. They're bigger than the Earth, like you know, much bigger, right? I mean, it, They would fit in from end to end between the Earth and the moon. Yeah, wow. exactly. So I love, and, and then we found on the edge of the B-ring, and we also That's found thin. a similar thing uh, on the edge of a gap in the outer A-ring. We found these mountainous waves of rubble that extend two and three miles high. Because wow. of the resonance with the moons, right? Yeah, it's a little complicated. In one case, a moon is nearby, and it actually, because it's on an inclined orbit, it draws the particles out of the plane. Right. It's not complicated. It's just like pushing a kid on a swing, and every time you push That's him, a, it goes farther. Right, okay, except that what's complicated is because of that pushing on the swing, the orbits of the particles become eccentric, and that means in certain regions of the orbit, they get squeezed together. together. And that has to push them higher. Right. But on the outer edge of the B-ring, these things are these rubble piles, these rubble mountains are very irregular looking. But they're high. So imagine this. You've got a sheet of material that's 30 feet thick. Something coming out so it, it, that's miles high. And I, I've often said in public, I love... And how I fast love, are you spinning? Like 40,000 miles an hour? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, so you say you'd like to take a craft there one day, but are you just being hyperbolic? Because, I mean, that sounds like a very dangerous place to drive a, a I don't vehicle. care. I'm just, this is just like all in my mind's eye. I'm in would a it ever be possible to actually have a shuttlecraft that close to these spinning yes. debris yes. rings? Yes. Really? Yeah. Oh, my God. That sounds so you like could, some you serious could be, extreme sports to me. You could be over the rings. You know, and if you're really close to the rings, the rings would look like they extend to infinity to you effectively. Sure. You're so low. And imagine you're flying, you're flying, you're flying, and then you come across a wall of rubble that's two or three miles high. So I, the artist who did this, I think, had heard me say that, and he wanted to paint it. So we went back and forth as to what it should look like. And um, it's you're in a Chevy Nova. No, <laughs> no, no, no. Great name for the car, Joe, yes. by the way. Yeah, <laughs> anyway, so we're not sponsorship. I, I, love, I love the connection between art and, art science. and science. I think they're just, they're two, um, they're just like two products of the human soul and mind. So lightning I mean, round. Da Vinci is a perfect example of someone who could be a scientist mm. and an artist kind of at the same time. The confluence of well, engineering and art in his brain was, was and amazing. It's not, it was it's, not only, it's not only that. It's I think they derive from the same wellspring. You know, the same kind of deep soul that loves to, you know, wants to make, this is how it is for me, mm. wants to make a connection with the natural world. I mean, a deep, like almost right. high priestess kind of connection. Yeah. And science is the only way to do it. And music is, I should say, shouldn't say the only, but Music is another. Right. Well, I think that's why music is beautiful, because we recognize harmonies, which are, you know, harmonic geometries that are, you know, the same reason that numbers describing the universe can have their own beauty to them. And I think it's exactly the same thing. Absolutely. All right. Speaking of beauties, let's get to the rest of our questions. We're going to move to a lightning round right now. Okay. I hope I do this As many questions in as possible in the short period of time remaining. Okay? Make them good. Here we go. Let's make them good. Here we go. This is from Michael Will. Wojtas, who says, uh, do you see how virtual reality and augmented reality can influence art and architecture? 
Do I see? It already how- has. It already has with very ugly buildings in Germany. Okay. Bing! There we go. John <laughs> Allen would like to know this. Do you think that social media spreads more information, misinformation than information is a net gain or loss for our understanding of science? It's impossible to measure. Come on. It's, oh, it's either and, not either or. Ooh, both and. Good, I like that. I was going to say the same thing. It's going to be a wash. It's a wash. There you go. Boom. <laughs> Let's move on to David Connolly. David Connolly from Facebook would like to know this. The oceans are expanding, so maybe we should consider returning to the water. <laughs> Under the sea. Yeah, that, that'll take too long, so let's just stay landlubbly. Do dolphins return to the water after being <laughs> a pig-like mammal? <laughs> well, yeah, they still I, breathe air. So, did. hey. Okay, let's go to uh, Stephen B., uh, who comes to us from Twitter, who says this, Hi, Carolyn, what would be the social and religious impacts of the discovery of a more advanced alien civilization? Oh, my God. Uh, catastrophic. It would, con- it would confirm all of religion. No, I'm kidding. It wouldn't. <laughs> it would. It would it, world peace. <laughs> it would. Why do they have to be more more evolved than us? I mean, just just even equals or or, or early. No, but I just like would. I think the person is getting to the issue. Like, would we be so freaked out we'd run for cover? Right. Yeah. Uh, it would be great. I hope I live to see it. <laughs> Me too. Mm. Amen. There you go. Uh, this is uh, Solidamian from Instagram. Would like to know this. Mm. Do you think that social medias are getting or making people dumb? Uh, what? What? <laughs> what is it? Uh, <laughs> you're dead. <laughs> dead. <laughs> All right, here we go. This one is from Hubert Tur- Oh, I am not even trying. I'm not trying. I'm sorry. It's Hubert, Hubert. Humbert Togafrost, whatever. Uh, <laughs> he wants to know this. Do you consider cheating uh, to use technology to create arts? This is for both of you. Uh, is technology cheating? No. Is a paintbrush cheating? No. Uh, uh, I don't know. I'm passing. <laughs> a guitarist technology, obviously that's not No, cheating. but I mean, to do, to have no, for human inspirational input into it? Right. I mean, like the deep dream bot that made all those weird surrealist uh, Google images? I mean, even DreamBot was programmed by people, so then, okay. you know, we have yet to have art okay. created okay. by okay. no we one. We have to wrap it up. We've got only nine seconds left. Uh, <laughs> thank you all to all our wonderful listeners for all those great questions. You can get more Star Talk by following us on Twitter, at Star Talk Radio. Uh, Chuck, where can the people get more of you? Uh, my living room. I'll be there this afternoon. <laughs> Please come by. Come by. No, no. I'm on Twitter at Chuck Nice Comic, and uh, that's where I uh, interact with most people. Okay. And Sean, I know you are at, at Sean Ono Lennon because that's where you and I met up. Yep. That's one of, the, one of the really good things about Twitter for me. And you can find me at, at Carolyn Porco. All one word. My record company is Kamiramusic.com if you're interested in music. Yeah, and go see CL. Del- you, they can't see you anymore, right? You're- yeah, the Claypool and Delirium is my band. No, I'm playing in October, and, and we'll, we're about to make another record. So, yeah, check us uh, out. Another record. Right. Great. Okay, looking forward to that. So thank you, Chuck, for co-hosting tonight, and to our special guest, Sean Lennon, for geeking out with us tonight, even though he doesn't think he geeked out. I am your host, Carolyn Porco. Until next time. Hey. 
Hey, Chuck Nice here, uh, doing a little Star Talk All-Stars with two of our All-Stars, uh, our main All-Star, which is Carolyn Porco, Dr. Carolyn Porco, and sitting next to me is Sean Lennon. The assistant All-Star. The assistant All-Star. <laughs> hey, so we're, uh, we're Facebook Live right now, which means that hopefully we have some people out there who are watching us, and uh, they're going to give us some... Uh, some queries, just okay. like we would if we were doing Star okay, Talk. Okay, I'm bracing myself. And I actually have the first one in my hand. It's from Alan Tier. Hey, Alan, what's happening, buddy? Um, and he says this, uh, Sean, has music been an important focus for the psychological research in, oh, well, it's not just Sean, but has music been an important focus for the psychological research in NASA for their astronaut program? For instance, do they try to encourage certain uh, genres to promote positive feelings or leave it up to the personal taste? It's all gangster rap. It's only gangster rap. <laughs> It's all easy E yeah. and too loud. Well, that would put you in a good mood, wouldn't it? Like waking up on Mars and hearing gangster rap. Do you know uh, anything I, about that? Is there a musical, psychological uh, component to preparing to go to other planets? I unfortunately don't know those kinds of details about how they're preparing humans for long-duration flights. But I do know, as you remember, on the shuttle, they woke up the astronauts every morning with some song. Yeah, and on the on the IS uh, International Space Station, that guy did uh, Ziggy Stardust, was it? That's that's what I mean. The or, ISS, they wake them up. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, he actually Chris did a Hadfield. video for the, no, no, the he David did, Bowie song. He did. I mean, uh, is there life on Mars? Was that the one he did, or did he? No, he, he did. Do, Ground control, Ground control to major yeah. time. Okay, yeah. Space Odyssey. Did a great, yeah, of great version of it. In fact, so great that David Bowie said it was the most poignant version he'd ever heard. He was being kind. No, I'm joking. No, it was great. <laughs> it, it was, was actually great. great. All right, let's take another. Uh, let's take another uh, question. Fahad uh, Ashk. I'm, I don't know your last name, Fahad, but uh, you know your last name, all right? Uh, why is our solar system so flat and everything is on one orbital plane? Oh, and this, no, and that's, please, that's a good question please, for you. Please, Carolyn, tell me the same thing about Saturn's rings. It's the same deal. It has to do with, I'm sorry, I'm going to get nerdy on you, but it has to do with the loss of energy and the conservation of angular momentum. Nice. Okay, nice. <laughs> Do so I pass? How, how much of a micro solar system is Saturn in terms of the way planets and, you know, planetoids form? Well, put aside the rings, which we think are kind of an aborted, um, well, we think they are moons that had gotten smashed up and they're so close to Saturn where the gravity gradient is so great they can't coalesce again. So they're in equilibrium. They're not going to turn into planets eventually, or little moons eventually. No, they will probably disappear, but they're not going to turn into little moons. But the rest of the moons, they're all, uh, well, the ones within about 10 million kilometers, they're all rotate, uh, revolving around Saturn in the same direction. Mm. And um, they came from a cloud of material in the same way that the solar system formed from a cloud of dust and gas and so on, it had some innate original rotation. Mm -hmm. And so it had a preferred vector in space, a rotational axis in space. And in that circumstance, when you have material that collides and loses energy, but it retains the angular momentum along that axis, it ends up, what happens is it all collapses down into a plane. And so it's then a why natural is Venus outcome. rotating in the other direction? Why, uh, is, it, why is it clockwise well, it could the have got the solar system, which is Probably got hit by an impact. Right. Uranus is also on its side. If you have, remember, this happens at a time when uh, it's uh, late in the solar system's early, the 
late part of the early, early formation, season, right? right. So it's, the, it's the end of the beginning. It's the end, <laughs> it's of, the the beginning. end of the beginning. And you still have large impactors coming and hitting things, and they can alter the angle momentum. But because of this loss of energy uh, and um, con conservation of angular momentum, there are basically two shapes in the universe. There are spheres and there are disks, cool. and one can evolve into the other. Nice. Scientists like doing that, like reducing it to really simple things. So, so nebulas, two galaxies, mm. only have a few geometries that they can take, right? There's like a... Well, they're a little bit more messy because... Spiral galaxy, and then what else? Spiral galaxies are all disk galaxies, so right. they... they um, they take this form. They flatten out. But, you know, other galaxies are, can, they can be the result of the merger of... Right, galaxies colliding, more. which we're on our way to meet Andromeda. Andromeda. Yes. We have a date with Andromeda. Not, none of us galaxies are make colliding, that Jerry. None galaxies colliding. None of us will make but, that But day. it's fun to think about, like, Andromeda being so much bigger in the sky, right? Do you know if we had eyes that were far more sensitive than we do, and we could actually, you know, store up the the energy that that Photons, collects right. yeah uh, like a cat I don't know if a cat can do that yeah. but I do know or that an the Andromeda galaxy would be twelve moons across wow that's how big it would be, that's how big it would be. what is that thing they Gorgeous. call the great attractor thanks Sean uh, uh, I was hoping besides, you would bring yeah, that besides up. your man breasts <laughs> besides my what no, his no we're talking about you don't have them okay where's the yeah, there you go. That was the inappropriate bell. No, because isn't, isn't, there, isn't there an unknown uh, uh, attraction towards a certain area of the universe that doesn't have to do with the direction that we should normally be moving in? Actually, I don't know anything about this topic. They call it the great attractor, and all the galaxies in our neighborhood are moving in that direction. But are you sure? Maybe it's just part of the, lo the, the group, the local group. I was that asking you, yeah. Oh. So thank you very oh, yes. much. It's the great attractor. It could just be James Brown up there somewhere. <laughs> James exactly. Brown. No, that's where galaxies. Elvis went. That's where Elvis, Elvis went, the great, the great attractor. All right, hey, Crystal Cantu wants to know this. I would like to know more about OSIRIS-REx. Uh, I know asteroids are an issue, but what is the likelihood of any potential disaster would be officially disclosed. I don't know exactly what Crystal means there, but Osiris the Rex, she asked about OSIRIS-REx, I, I thought It's a great. mission that's going to go and pick up a sample from an asteroid and come back with it. Right. So it's going to be a sample return mission. Sample return mission. Maybe she's referring to a disaster where the thing is making its way through the atmosphere and the container cracks open. I don't know. Yeah. There's no people involved. It's not going to be... It's supposed to send back the container, and then the container's going to land somewhere in the desert of Utah, right? I, I mean, Yeah, it's... we kind of have done this already with a mission called Stardust, which returned material from a comet. It did crash the container. And we shouldn't did... be worried, because we're constantly getting, being rained with debris from space anyway. I mean... Oh, is that what they... Th oh! I don't know. Is that what, if that's what oh, they're like, getting Oh, like but... the Andromeda strain. <laughs> um, no, I think they probably have all that planetary oh, protection stuff. Oh, that could stuff. be what she means. Yeah, like, we're bringing back substances from outer space do you know is there a possibility that we could be bringing back something I'll harmful you, i'll tell you that planetary protection is a huge issue for those of us who want to explore places like enceladus because we do think that very likely there could be some if not adamant if not um <clears throat> not you know if lot. not full organisms but uh, material for, that is biological 
And we want eventually to bring back a sample. And uh, we have to worry about how to protect the earth from contamination. It's a big issue. It's it, like as in money, too. It would cost a lot of money to mm -hmm. put all the safeguards in place. So it's being it's being uh, examined. Okay, cool. Uh, let's, uh, hey, Could you use the space station as an intermediate uh you know, lab to look at what you got first. That be you've you've read on this, right? You read though. about this. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> he knows everything. This guy. <laughs> no, no. He, my God, he's up on everything. Yes, yeah, they, that's they're, exactly right. They're right? thinking about putting all the like operating devices that would study it in orbit and just yeah. doing it all in orbit. But that yeah. and I even don't bringing know. back much larger samples too, like being able to grapple like a big giant something and bring it back and leave something. it at the yeah you know just we could be considering that yeah, yeah. They're, they're considering things like that from mars Ooh. Yeah. all right this is um mehran Hamza. You, you always pick the people with the really difficult names no i don't yeah well for americans they're not difficult for them i bet. yeah exactly it's difficult for me you know what um uh, i don't care what your name is it's difficult for me for some reason okay i'm terrible with names uh here's, this is what he says uh, I, I i detect a little like a little bit of an irksome quality in his question uh -huh. why does nasa focus on dead rocks like mars for life discovery. Oh, you've asked, Whoa. he's asked the wrong person. Oh, really? Well, because this is like one of those things that gets, I have a bee in my bonnet about this. Oh, really? I know, I think he's asked the right person. Is he right? Yeah, about. let's hear what well, you Well, you know, say. there was a time long ago when Mars was the place to go. It made so much sense to go and look there, but we've been there with mission after mission after mission. All the Mars people are going to hate me after this. Now thing. Enceladus is where it's at. The outer solar system is really where it's at right. because... You know, the, the, even the mantra at NASA is follow the water. Follow the water. Right. And much greater, because much greater propensity for life to exist in water. Much greater chance so for life as we know it. If you were to bet Europa and Enceladus, where would you bet? Ha, you know the answer to this. I do. I just want you to Yeah, say. of course it's Enceladus. Nice. Not because, that's him. Not because, <laughs> not because Enceladus has a greater chance of having life. It's because it's uh, ocean expressed as these phenomenal geysers shooting into space is so much more accessible. So we could do all the things we've all talked about doing, like what kind of instruments, what are the biosignatures we go after, you know, how do we, you know, back up one approach by having another. We could do all that on Enceladus now. Very right, cool. Next. Very More cool. Uh, actually, we have an answer to the uh, the great attractor. Uh, I don't have time to read it, but oh, that's thank great. You, They're answering. They're oh, answering yeah. oh, our question. This is what's James great Brown? about this, and it is James Brown yeah. and <laughs> James Brown and Elvis getting in a hot tub. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That, I would. No. I would see that. No, that's great. And actually, a lot of people are talking about so the. So what is? What are they saying? Oh man, he's giving. Oh crap! I lost it now. He gave me. He, he, okay, let me just say, the great attractor is a gravitational anomaly in the intergalactic space within the vicinity of the Hydrocentaurus supercluster. Thank and it goes Spock. on more and more and more with that. Oh, so, is it dark matter? Is it a dark matter Yeah, thing? so, hey, um, well, Maslam, Maslam, man, thank you, brother. That was a great, uh, great little answer that you uh, helped us out yes, with Yes, thank you. Um, let's see. But an anomaly just means we don't know what it is. So. Well, but if it's, a great, if it's a gravitational anomaly, it means things are being... Uh, uh, the thing, the stuff around it is behaving as if there's a lot right. of mass there. There's right. all the galaxies in our neighborhood. It must be a big thing. It could be a lot of dark matter. It's maybe where, like, but I mean, that's really all. We, the, the, the truth is, all we really observe is anomalies, right? For the most part, when 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 something acts as if it's being acted upon, that's the indication that something's going on. 
yes. right? Yeah, but yeah, an anomaly you just that like a, the planet nine is there. Or right, exactly. Like we haven't never seen planet X or planet nine, right? Well, we haven't yourself. seen it. We haven't found it yet. We haven't found it, but we know something's happening, and so we're gravitational able to... wobbles. Right. The wo- okay. So yes. cool. Good band name. All right, here we go. I like obliquities. 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 It's kind of going to turn off a certain fan base, but we'll get, Is smart, it will? We'll get Oblique- smart fans. It sounds like my jazz project. Mm, obliquities. Sean Lennon obliquities. Uh, someone says, hey, Sean, stop showing off. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> Dude, when you've got pecs like this. Yeah. <laughs> Let me tell you, Sean is uh, definitely one of the most science literate guests we have ever I had. Know I know. Amazing. Did. I'm he taking. Amazing. Can I get, do I get brownie points for this? Do I get credit? Yes, you do get brownie points because Carolyn bought us. I brought him. Uh, I brought him Carolyn here. Carolyn bought us Sean. So I am. I turned out points. to be a good talent and, scout. <laughs> hey, guess what? Facebook Live. Thanks for uh, joining us. I think we're going to do some more of this kind of stuff. You know, it seems as though from the um, reaction that I'm getting here on Facebook that people really dig it. So thanks a lot for all the support, guys. We really appreciate it. All right. Ciao. Ciao.